Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We've got a great show today. I have got a survival to thrival expert, and that's what I think every single one of us needs right now. Phyllis Ginsberg is also known and beloved by lots of happier, healthier, and less stressed working professionals, just as what I announced, the survival to thrival expert. She's written two books, Brain Makeover, A Weekly Guide to a Happier, Healthier, and More Abundant Life, and Tired and Hungry No More, Not Your Ordinary Guide to Reclaiming Your Health and Happiness. I think her 30 years of experience as a marriage and family therapist, expertise in positive psychology, brain research, and EFT tapping really helps her to give her clients an edge in making lasting, profound changes in their lives. Quickly, they can shift their stressful thinking to achieve calm, clarity, and creativity. And it doesn't get any better than that. That means that the quality of their life and their work gets better, often in a moment. I think we're really happy to have you here today, Phyllis. I could use a little bit of that today. Oh, I think we all could right now. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I think it's really timely to have you on the show because You know, everything that's been going on around us, it started with the pandemic and COVID and, you know, the election. And we started, we opened in Texas, we opened early elections up sooner. And I think that just opened up our anxiety level sooner. And there's there's so much uncertainty. What do you tell people? How do they deal with this? Well, first, I want to say to everyone listening that, Given what's going on, it is normal to feel anxious and worried. What we've got is a whole lot of uncertainty, and that produces anxiety. And so we don't have control over what's going on. I think that, yes, because of COVID, the states, like individual states, have made up different rules, and there's all these inconsistencies. And as human beings, we don't do well when we don't have predictable things. We don't tend to like change to begin with. And so when you add in, these people are doing it this way, and now we're doing it that way, and and you can start voting now, and then maybe you can start voting. You can send in something after, like... It's so confusing that our minds can't grasp the structure to hold on to. Well, I agree with you. I think that, you know, we used to, voting was very easy. You went, you, it was very clean. It was, there was more, there wasn't so much stress around it and so much anger around it. And I think that the anger has been, comes from the COVID-19. It comes from, you know, the race demonstrations. And then you put the election on top, and the anger really makes us more vulnerable. Right. We have an accumulation, layers and layers. And this didn't just start with COVID. I think what we're seeing in our country right now is an accumulation of a lot of built up frustration, built up anger and resentment over 
for example, I was working with someone last night and the, the anger and resentment over that things don't get done in politics the way they used to. It doesn't feel like the, at least for her, she didn't feel like as a citizen that they were in, working in her best interest. And so now we've got this polarity between Democrats and Republicans, and then you put them in a room trying and accomplish something. And it's like two parents fighting. The parents well, aren't doing what they need to do to make sure the kids are okay. You know, I think one thing that I I do have a, a positive takeaway from this election is I have learned a lot about how things work. And I'm probably have needed to know that all along, but really how that, you know, I'm like, how does the Speaker of the House have so much power? Just simple things that I've really not stopped and thought about because we've never been so polarized before. Mm -hmm. Right. And this election is like splitting hairs. So when you've got half the country uh, believing in one philosophy and, and they're being told a certain amount of information based on that. And then you've got the other half getting other information and the media is so fear-based. What I've been hearing from a lot of clients from both sides are almost exactly the same words, but the amount of like angst towards each other is because neither neither party or people who believe one way or the other stops long enough to say, okay, maybe you're not the enemy, but there's a lot of fear. Like if this person gets in, all of our rights are going to go away. It is so extreme, the amount of fear over rights and what what's going to happen. Well, and I think that that fear lives within all of us. And I think that w when the more threatened we feel, the more of that fear comes out. Mm -hmm. And certainly just on our basic level, you know, it goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The first thing that you need is physical safety. And now it's like, don't stand too close to somebody. Don't hug anybody. Don't shake hands. You know, you're physically, you feel like you're threatened. And that's your foundation. We don't have that to stand on. And then you throw everything else on top and it gets a lot harder to be happy. But I'm interested in your book, The Brain Makeover, because I believe that happiness starts in the brain and I think happiness lives in the brain. So tell me a little bit about your book. So my book came out of my experience of being in near burnout. And this was in 2005. I had been working in my niche of high-conflict divorce cases. So at that time, and for about a decade before, so I was in private practice. Well, still am, but, uh, and I took on way more work. <laughs> I said yes to way more than I should have. And what I found and learned going through this process of thinking about how do I get myself back after being in near burnout in every area of my life? Cause I tried to be there 
doing the work I was doing, which was really intense, but my overly responsible brain and self loved the work I was doing. So it, that wasn't the stressor part. It was that I took on too much. I really wanted to be spending more time with my kids before they grew up. Uh, so I, I was being pulled in different places. But what was more like enlightening to me were all the patterns that I discovered about myself that weren't working, such as perfectionism and putting other people first, doing what I think I'm supposed to do. All these things came together out of my writing. What I did when I took a break was I started a blog and I wrote five days a week. And so every Monday was on Healthy Mind. And these were my favorite writings. And my writings were only a couple of paragraphs because I don't like to re read long things. And I figure most people don't e either. So what I did is I put together in Brain Makeover the weekly readings from those blogs. I tweaked some of them, added some, uh, and basically turned it into a quasi-workbook so that people can actually take steps to change their brain, do something for a week, put something into action, think about something, and really see the transformation happen quickly. So what was the first thing that you did? So the very first thing after I farmed out my clients, I referred them back to courts and other therapists. Uh, I think it was pretty close after that. I had discovered that this whole field of positive psychology was available. It wasn't something that was taught when I went to school 30 years ago. But positive psychology just really opened my mind uh, to this whole concept of resiliency and being able to work with your strengths rather than focus on your weaknesses. Because most of us as therapists, we go for, okay, so you're depressed or anxious, you've got these problems, let's focus on them. And positive psychology has us focusing on not just what's going wrong, but what's going well, and then shoring up some of those positive qualities. And what I started doing since I, uh, the research that I was looking at showed that people who are happier, they felt better about themselves. They had an improved sense of well-being. They were more content. I decided to keep a happiest moment of the day journal. And I did this for a solid year. I wrote down, for me, I did th like five things. You can do three to five write down three to five things a day that make you happy. I did this with five things every day for a year, and it was significantly transformational. Not only was I now connecting with myself in new ways, I was looking for things that personally made me focus on me to figure out what makes me happy. And very few of us I think spend the time looking at, wow, what does make me happy? I should be happy because I 
have a job or I should be happy or I should be grateful, right? These are all like shoulds, but that happiness that comes from within, that's a whole different happiness. And that's the kind of happiness that I I wanted for my readers. Well, you know, and, and you say the shoulds and the musts, mm-hmm. those, those are self-defeating thoughts. I should do this. I should do that. I must do this. And then when we don't do those things, we get down on ourselves. So the shoulds and the musts, those are, those are friends that I hope don't visit me very often, if at all. Right. I when the more that I have been working on myself and I have been on a personal growth journey, I think since I was like 19, but these last 10, 15 years since I have been writing more and being more intentional with what I'm doing to be in the present moment, to notice like using my five senses, some of the the things that make me the happiest are feeling warmth or sunshine on my face, seeing a beautiful, like peach colored rose, that first sip of tea or a taste of something really delicious or hearing my favorite song. Like it doesn't cost any money to have those experiences. Well, you know, I think you're right. It's the little things in life that mean the most to us. And I think we're we're all, when we think that we need, we're going to do something to make ourselves feel better, we think we need to do something grand, something, you know, really big. And we don't. We need to stop and look and listen inwardly. And, and what makes, nothing makes me happier than to just go lay on the floor and pet my dogs. And right. Makes them pretty happy, too. <laughs> it's a win-win. But, you know, I'm always amazed because we always think that we've got, you know, we've got to do something we've never done before. We've got to outdo this. And and we don't. No, it truly is the simpler things. And the brain really, it responds quickly if you give it something that it believes in. It's it's like if you know that you can do something and it it's manageable, it's doable, you're more likely to do it again. If you have a what I call a small win, a mini success, it's like, yay, that was good. Let's do it again. Let's do some more of that. And that's the, the beauty of the weekly readings and brain makeover is that there are small things that you can do that over time will produce big results. But if you go for the big results first and you try and do something grand, like I'm going to go exercise five days a week, like you'd be lucky if you make it one week. Well, and then because you only made it twice, you're up, you're upset with yourself and you're down on yourself. And that just, that gets in the way of the next time you think you're going to try and go. And, you know, the brain is amazing to me because all the brain really wants is equilibrium and homeostasis. It wants that balance. And sometimes we let our lifestyle choices throw that brain out of balance. And sometimes it's with too much social media or too much TV or too much alcohol or, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that can throw our brain, our brain out of balance, not enough sleep. That's a, 
that'll hit it right away. For sure. Well, I wrote a whole book on uh, lifestyle choices called Tired and Hungry No More. And I did an amazing, immense amount of research on sleep. And just the lack of sleep for one night, I was feeling it. I stayed up extra late the night of the election. You know, for me to stay up till 11 was late because I'm an early morning person. And the next day, like yesterday, I was like, whoa, I'm not doing that again. So back to bed, like, you know, 9, 9.30, 10. But a lot of people get stuck in what I what I would say they pick up patterns to avoid feeling because the feelings are too much. They're overwhelming. So for, for anyone who feels like, wow, I started drinking a little more than I usually do, or maybe a lot more since COVID I've put on weight. I'm eating more. I'm eating more mindlessly. Uh, I'm bored stiff because I don't have as much work or I'm not, using my time very wisely. I'm not motivated. All of these are signs that lifestyle choices aren't working because life is so different and we haven't figured it out how to cope with where we're at. We're in, it's like we're in limbo and the brain does not like that. Well, you know, and, and I've, I'm seeing more people with sleep issues at the Brain Performance Center. And I think part of that is because our relationship around sleep has changed. A lot of people are working from home. Some of them will will do their work and while they're laying in bed. A lot of kids were, were doing homeschooling. And some of them would be laying in their bed while they're doing that, watching, playing videos, watching TV. You know, some people tell me they even eat in their bed. Well, that disassociates that the bed is for sleep. So right. you, when you start now, all of a sudden, when you crawl into bed, it's like, well, I don't want to go to sleep. You know, I can't. Where's, where's my Nintendo? Where's my TV? Where's this? Um, so I think that those are lifestyle choices, but some of them have been imposed by what's going on in our environment. Um, I know I have a good friend in the Bay Area in San Francisco that has, you know, an apartment that is 1,200 square feet. She's got two kids, homeschooling. She's working from home. Her husband's working from home. You bet those beds are being used for different things. Right. Yeah, I know people doing that, the same thing. And there's some of the people I work with have three or four. I have one, one woman, she's got five kids trying to homeschool and keep some resemblance of work going. I, I don't know how some of these people do it. Well, I don't either. But, you know, you mentioned resilience earlier on. And I think that that is something that my resilience bank account is what I use to draw from when I get really stressed out. And I feel like my bank account has been depleted because a lot of the things that I used to do, um, have been taken away from me. I mean, when I'd get really stressed out, I could get energy just going to the gym, just talking to somebody at the gym, whether I knew them or not. You know, same thing with people. A lot of people have told me I used to love doing part of my workday from Starbucks. Now I can't do that. So we need other things 
that we can pull from to help us during this time. What what do you use in, as part of your resilience bank account? For me, one of the highest priorities that works for me is to meditate. So every morning, for sure, that's non-negotiable, that I will spend at least 20 minutes. Uh, some of the other things that really help me to build my resiliency are uh, I use EFT tapping, the emotional freedom technique. Mm-hmm. And so I will combine that with some journaling. And if there's something that's really up for me or getting in my way or the that I'm aware of, I will do some tapping on that and really calm down the the fight or flight response and get myself to a place where I can get some clarity. I do really well with clarity. The places that I don't do so well that I'm still working on, and this is because of the way I was brought up, uh, laughing and playing wasn't really encouraged and valued. So to laugh and play more. If if that is something you're drawn to, you don't have to sit in meditation. If if you can't sit still, don't even try. But finding ways to decompress, to de-stress, builds resiliency. Anything that gets you moving and feeling better, like dancing or singing, going for a walk or a run, not doing yoga, move your body, like it puts you more in touch with you and it will ease some of that stress response. Well, and and the brain loves movement. The brain needs that movement. So I think that we all think we used to be so concerned about our physical health and a lot of people still are. And I'm amazed by that because who's in charge? You know, and I had, I asked that question to a client. She said, well, your heart is. You know, because if your heart stops beating, you'll die. Well, who tells the heart to beat? Mm -hmm. The brain, you know. So the focus that we need to put on our mental health, I think, is equally important. And I think that's, I wrote a book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On, for that very reason. For people to kind of understand, number one, it's okay to not be okay. And number two, you have to take care of your brain just like you do your body. I know everybody can tell me what their cholesterol is or they can give me their blood pressure. But can you tell me when you were happy the last time? Yeah, that's a really good question. And if you can't answer it, then own that. And figure out, what do I need to do, you know? I mean, in your book, the, the first chapter, you said week one, start with happiness. Tell us about that. So the reason that I said start with happiness came from my years of working with high-conflict divorce people where all they focused is on the fight, the negative, the problems. And... As soon as you're looking for what makes you happy, if you know you're going to write in your journal your five most happiest moments of the day, you now have like a 
a magnifying glass looking for happiness, happy things, things that are going to light you up, maybe make your heart sing or feed your soul. And that's a that's a shift. That's like looking um, looking in a new direction, putting on different glasses, taking a different path. And as soon as your brain now is on that path, you can't be on that path and the path of misery and unhappiness at the same time. Well, and that makes a really good point. And it's something that I always tell my clients because we work off of treatment goals. And that is, if you don't know what you're looking for, you're never going to find it. You've got to be focused on what your goals are, what behavioral changes do you expect or do you want to see? And I think sometimes we can, everybody can tell you, I don't want that. I don't want that. Okay. What do you want? Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So putting those glasses on is a really good point. Right. Most people don't know what they want. And if they do know what they want and they set a goal, they're still thinking in the direction of what they don't want rather than what they do want because they're still living in the past or they're afraid of making uh, another mistake or repeating a past failure. So it's like trying to drive forward while looking in the rearview mirror. And so I guide people to think in the direction of what they want, even if they don't know how to get there or how it's going to happen. Because the hows don't really matter to the brain as much as thinking in this in the direction of what where you are going well and i think that that clarity of, of knowing you know where i'm going and who knows exactly how i'm going to get there um, because sometimes the road that we think we're going to take isn't the road that we take we find it a shorter more efficient way to do it or we find a more thorough way to do it that increases our results i, I mean i love talking about the brain and and think that the more that you understand what impacts your brain, the more that you can feed the brain what it needs. And when we, in a couple of minutes, we're going to take a break and we'll come back. We'll talk more about that. But just, you know, for the first half of the show, if you wanted to leave somebody with a thought, what would that thought be? I'd say what you just commented on you are exactly correct that the the brain does need to know uh where you're going like you need to have that direction it's like having a map and clarity gives you what you need to move forward because you can't do it with fear no you sure fear keeps you where you're either lost in the past are worried about the future. Exactly. And when you're either one of those, you're not going anywhere and you're not going anywhere good. That That is for sure. And I think, you know, these days fear is probably the most prevalent feeling that I'm seeing from clients. And I, I have to admit, I have experienced more fear than in the last month than I normally do. So I'm open to understanding and helping people with their vulnerability. We'll be back after these messages. 
Would you like to know how to bring more ease to all the decisions you need to make in life? Knowing your core values is the first step in Joyce's free live masterclass. You'll discover your top five core values in as little as 45 minutes. Join her now at freegiftfromjoyce.com. a really bad haircut from a barber or stylist? I mean, so bad it looks like you cut your own hair. What's a word for a person who does cut their own hair? An autotonsorialist. And there's a word for a person who has never had a haircut. He would be called an acercicomic. How many hairs are there in your head anyway? If you're blonde, about 150,000. Brunette, 100,000. Or redhead, 60,000. One out of every 14 women in the United States is a natural blonde. Some people avoid getting their hair cut because they're afraid they'll get not padded. That's what it's called when your hair is cut too short. Why do shampoo instructions say, lather, rinse, repeat? If you did this, would you ever be able to stop? It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back and we're just talking a little bit about the brain and what, you know, think about it. The brain weighs three pounds and it's mostly water. It doesn't really sound very significant, but it, it, it truly is. And sometimes when our brain's not working as well as it can, it can distort the way that we think. Um, it can make things that we think happened Maybe they didn't happen. And I think we, we were touching on that during break, Phyllis. Yes. So one of the things that from what I know and discovered in working with clients is that the brain tends to need to fill in the gap. So if there's a story, there's a situation, and you can take anything, COVID or the election or whatever it is, uh, we tend to fill in the gaps when we don't have all the information and we do that with worst case scenarios. And here's the problem with that is because the brain doesn't know the difference if you actually did something or just thought about it, it creates a physical response in your body. It can be from mild stress, discomfort, anxiety to a full-blown panic attack. So when you've got a stressful thought and you've got these worst case scenarios going, that's going to change your physiology. And you're either going to be producing stress hormones like cortisol or adrenaline, or you change your thoughts to something that's calmer, happier, you feel better, and then your body produces, your brain gives it the instructions to produce feel-good hormones like serotonin and dopamine. 
Well, you know, you're right, because whenever those adrenal glands get stressed out and they they start kicking out all that cortisol, and that cortisol that gets in the white matter, the gray matter of the brain, it can change the way you process information. It can change the way you make decisions. And what happens to most of us, it puts us in that fight-or-flight mode, and we tend to get stuck there. And when we're stuck in fight-or-flight, we're not making the best decisions we're not processing the information in the right way. Exactly. So. We're actually more in reactive mode than being able to make deliberate, thought-out decisions. Absolutely. And when we're reactive, that right side of the brain where the amygdala lies that uses all of our emotions, when we're reactive, we're using that part of the brain. And a lot of times when we react, you know, it's interesting. It only takes the brain 90 seconds to recognize the activating event and the brain to react to it. And during those 90 seconds, when we're in that reactive mode, we tend to react very emotionally. And, you know, I honestly believe people will forget what you say and people will forget what you do. But people will not forget how you make them feel. And if you're not thinking through and if you're just reacting and making somebody feel bad, is that what you want to be remembered for? Be kind. You know, help, helping others, it's a win-win strategy for your brain and for their brain. Right. So I'd like to talk a little bit about why it might be really hard. It's a huge challenge to be kind. It's a huge challenge to get out of reactive mode and be able to think clearly and get to a place where you can be be that person so that you could have the win-win. Okay, and- well, from, from my point of view, it's all about first thing I do is I do an assessment and I see what's going on in people's brain. How are those neurons and dendrites wiring and firing? We all have slow, medium and fast ways and we need them all, but we need the right amount. If we've got too much fast wave, it tends to make us, make us anxious. Or if we don't have enough good, calm processing power, that might make us anxious. Or If our brain, the coherence in our brain, the way it shares information, if it's oversharing or undersharing, doesn't matter to me. It's dysregulated. And the same with phased. The timing, is it too fast? Is it too slow? Have you ever known anybody that just had to interrupt you? They'd come right up to you and say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but I just got to tell you, timing's too fast in that brain? They probably did just have to tell you. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's kind of what I use in neuroplasticity because neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to change. And if that brain gets stuck and it can't, you know, you don't have that plasticity, it's hard. It's really hard to make, to change your behavior or it's hard to believe that you can do this and you can do it well. So that's kind of the way I look at it. How do you look at it? Well, from my perspective is that the most common thing that I see probably in in almost 100% of people is how immersed they are in fear-based thinking. And when you 
when you really think about it, and we're experiencing it right now, we have fear-based politics, fear-based news. Uh, for those who might have grown up with fear-based parenting, you know, there was a lot of abuse that happened and uh, things before child abuse laws happened uh to come about, which weren't all that long ago. Um, fear-based religion. We are so fear-based as individuals in a society that when you're in chronic fear, I've got people who they may be sitting at their computer, they see an email come in from their boss, their doctor, or their ex, and they didn't even open it yet, and they're in fight or flight. Nothing has happened except that they got triggered by seeing that they have an email by someone well, that they don't want to deal with. And that's emotional trauma, you mm -hmm. know, and there are four things that puts a brain into a dysregulated state. One is genetics. Two is physical trauma. The third is emotional trauma. And the fourth is stress. And if every time they open an email from that ex, it stresses them out, there's emotional memory around that. Why would I want to do that? Why would I know what I'm going to get? Why would I, why would I reach out? Right. And if you have to co-parent children together, it makes it that much more complicated. Ooh, that's a really good example. You know, um, cause parenting in itself and I have two boys, two twin boys, and it was a great, the best thing I ever did. But parenting in itself was a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yes. The, the clients that I used to work with were all court-ordered to see me, given some range of services, whether it was a child custody evaluation, co-parenting, counseling, or parent-child reunification, mediations. Like These were the worst of the worst high-conflict divorce cases in the county. And when I stopped taking on court-ordered cases and I decided to work with people who wanted to make positive lasting changes, I noticed that this fear, the fear-based thinking, was still running the show for a lot of people. And many of them didn't have an idea what was really happening. But in the subconscious, there are all the the memories and the feelings and unresolved issues that keep getting triggered that really get in the way of making those lasting changes. Well, and I think that that, you, you know, you brought it up earlier because sometimes we're raised in an environment where fear is always there and it, it's in religion, it's in politics, it's, it's kind of ingrained Mm -hmm. into our into our system. So it takes a lot of personal effort to practice positive psychology. I mean, I'm amazed. There's a lot of research that shows you have three times more positive events every day in your life than you do negative. But do you know what the brain holds on to and what you remember? Yes. The, ne the negative. Right, you can get 10 positive comments and one negative, and that's what you're going to latch on to. Absolutely. Or, you know, do you forget all about the great day you had when you go into the grocery store and somebody bumps you with their cart, and, you know, and, and the person checking you out is not 
kind and that's all you remember. Oh, what an awful time I had at the grocery store. You forget about what a great day you had. So I think that it's a lot of work. And a lot of times people don't believe that they can do the work. I think a lot of people want to do the work. They want to eliminate that fear. Right. And I I like things to be simple. I, I have a friend that she started um, a workshop with this practice at the beginning of the year of picking a word for the year. And so my word, that must have been five, six years ago, was ease. I wanted to live a life with ease. So I put it on my water bottle. I drank my water out of it every day. I saw the word ease and like, oh, everything with ease. I am now known for the person of everything with ease, like everything with ease with Phyllis. This is how she rolls. This is how she works. And the more that I embrace this concept by focusing on the word ease, the more it became easier for me to live into that because I was reminded every day, that's how I want my life to be. This is how I want my business to be and my work to be. It It is a matter of keeping what you want top of mind and not letting all the past stuff get in the way of where you're going. It is. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people use mantras or positive affirmations. And I've I had an office that a tornado took down in October last year. And my mantra, my affirmation from that was, I will come back bigger and better and stronger. And when COVID hit and I closed my office for the five weeks the governor said we should, I pulled that mantra out. I will come back bigger and better and stronger. And I would say it at least four or five times every day. And because when you vocalize it, when you hear those words come out of your mouth, you believe them. So I have a philosophy about affirmations that they have to be at least believable to uh, enough of an extent that they don't stress you out. Because if you choose an affirmation that you truly don't believe is possible, you're going to create more stress for yourself. Oh, absolutely. You had enough resiliency to know this is true for me. And I, and probably your amount of certainty that it was attainable was really high. I do agree with that. I think a lot of times where affirmations don't work is where you have unrealistic expectations. Yes. Uh, And, you know, come back bigger and better and stronger. I, as a person, came back bigger and better and stronger from both of these events. So, but does that mean I'm going to triple the size of my business? You know, you have Mm -hmm. to be careful as to what, what's realistic and what's achievable. Because the last thing is I want those little two shoulds and must, those two little friends don't want them coming out. No, you don't want to set yourself up for failure by picking something that is so out of your reach that then you you feel bad because you can't ever achieve it. Well, you know, and I think that's a fine line because I have some clients that they really 
want me to help them be brave and to, you know, stick that toe across the line. And then I have some clients that really want me and need me to be nurturing and not don't, you know, and everybody needs different things. And it's just what I need on Tuesday may not be what I need on Friday either. Mm -hmm. And, and given the amount of uncertainty that's in our world right now, I would say every day could be a new day of what do I need today? Like you could wake up in the morning like, okay, how do I feel and what do I need today? But you make a good point there. We've got to do that emotional check-in. We've got to stop and say, you know, okay, Lee, how do you feel today? What do you need today, Lee? Instead of getting up saying, oh, just get over it. Just keep going. Just, just do it. Because then we're going to end up frustrated and disappointed. Right. I, I think that for most of us, when we can get out of autopilot, and that's the like 95% or higher amount of functioning from what's already been set in our brain. So it's the autopilot. It's not having to think about, you know, getting up in the morning and how do you get out of bed, brush your teeth and get food. So all of all the things that are on autopilot, those uh, the habits that we do, if we don't start asking ourselves some questions, we're just going to go through our day almost like zombies or like today looks like yesterday and tomorrow's going to be the same. And what am I doing? So for, for, I think you need to do an emotional check-in. I think you need to do a physical check-in. And I was talking with a client the other day. I'm like, you almost sound like Lee. You think I should have a checklist? And I said, well, actually, You don't need a page checklist, but just four or five questions that you ask yourself every day, I thought was a good idea. That could work or focus on one question for a week throughout the day. One of the things when I was recovering from my near burnout was what is the most loving thing I could do for myself right now? And I would ask myself that throughout the day. That's a great question to ask, you know. That's, that is a great question because that's what it all boils down to is we want to feel loved. We want to feel special. We don't want to feel afraid and disappointed. So how do you help your clients think differently? Well, like I mentioned before, I guide them to think in the direction of what they want. And it requires helping them to get clarity on what they want, looking at some of the things that show up when they think about what they want, like those fears and uncertainties and doubts, and then being able to get to a place of possibility thinking. So, for example, if what you focus on are problems, that's all you're really going to see. And when you're problem-focused, that's stress mode. But when you can then become 
focused on possibilities and your brain starts looking for possibilities, it's a game changer. So I'll introduce with tapping usually, but sometimes not, three or four or five different possibilities. And it really doesn't matter if someone likes them or agrees with them. What I'm doing is helping them build some new neural pathways to start thinking in that direction of possibilities so that they're open to a new way of looking at life, the world, and what could be for them instead of what they know to be. So tell me how you do that with tapping. Uh, I will give them phrases for anybody who's not familiar with tapping uh, or the emotional freedom technique. It's uh, tapping on meridian points on mostly the face and repeating phrases after me. So some of the possibilities, I could do possibilities like specifics to their situation, or I could use questions. And some of the questions might be, what else is possible here? And anybody can ask themselves that in a situation. Or what would feel good right now? What uh, what would make this easier? Who could help me? How could I get some support with this? So the, it's either phrases that are specific to a situation or some questions that get the brain thinking and focused on Oh, I never thought of that. I never thought of asking myself what, you know, what else is possible because I just function from what I know. I think you make a really good point is that I, and I, I believe that sometimes we're our own biggest enemies. We stand in our way because we don't either we don't have the time to think about, you know, what, gee, what are all my options? What's possible out there? And I think some people think that that's ridiculous thinking. You need to stay in the moment, you know. And But I believe you need to dream. And if you can't dream, you'll never get there. It's, it's important for you to reach your personal best. And, well, what? No. Go ahead. Well, no, please. You were going to oh, say yeah. Yes. One of the things... When I went to a training and they were sharing what brain scans look like in children from high-conflict divorce families, where there's domestic violence and yelling and screaming, uh, was what that kind of environment does to the brain. And so if that's what you know or you have that kind of a makeup, I think so many of us came from uh, childhoods where there was some kind of, whether it was emotional or physical abuse or neglect or growing up with a parent who wasn't available, like we all have those kinds of backgrounds. And so to have faith and belief and trust in yourself or some something else or the world or the possibility of something better that's what I help people work with because those are the things that get in the way. 
Well, I think that people need the opportunity to, and, and you know, what it boils down to is a time when I work with some single parents and when you, Honestly, sometimes I wonder, how do they just do everything they get done in a day? They've mm-hmm. got four kids, and they're working, and and I think, wow, if they just had a little bit of me time for themselves, how they could use that. Um, of course, when you, it makes them, when you say that, it makes them then angry because they don't have the me time sometimes. And then sometimes it makes him want to figure out, well, gee, Lee, help me figure this out. And I think that there's as many possibilities available that, as you can see. You know, we've got just a few minutes left. And and the brain makeover, you, you started off talking about happiness. Is there anything else in that book that you would like to share with our audience? There's actually a... Well, there's 52 weekly readings, but there are several of the weekly readings that have to do with self-care. And what you brought up was really important about the, you know, the single parents or the parents or the or the person who's working an 80 hour week. Um, Some of those conditions are lifestyles, ways that you just feel like you got to do what you got to do and you can't take a moment for yourself, I think is the biggest like misconception that if you only knew that if you took 10 minutes for yourself to do something that would feed you, that would nurture you, that would help fill up that tank that's so empty. You would have so much more to give. You'd have more energy. You'd have the ability to function better. You'd have more patience. You'd think clearer. All of these benefits come from carving out just a small amount of time to be able to do something different to help your brain to be in a calmer place. Well, you know, when I think of self-care, I think of two questions, and I need to ask myself. One, where do I get my energy from? I get my energy from, you know, walking the dogs. And what do I need for my downtime? Because sometimes maybe you need that hot bath for your downtime. Maybe other times you need a, a little moment of prayer or music, something to kind of hit that spiritual side. So if somebody were interested in getting the Brain Makeover book, where would they get that? Is it on Amazon? It is on Amazon, uh, paperback and Kindle. And it is somewhat of a workbook, so it's got places for you to write in if you prefer that. Uh, You can get it at most bookstores or order it through bookstores. And if somebody wanted to learn more about you, Phyllis, just in general, I think you have a website, correct? I sure do. It's myname.com, phyllisginsburg.com. So Phyllis is uh, with two L's. P-H-Y-L-L-I-S, and Ginsburg is G-I-N-S-B-E-R-G. Thank you for spelling that. When I say Lee, nobody ever spells L-E-I-G-H, so I'm always wanting to be sure we get the spelling straight. I thank you. And and the Tired and Hungry No More, is that book available in the same places? Correct. Great. 
Well, I certainly ex- appreciate you spending time with me today and and makes me feel, you know, a lot better just having this conversation. It makes me feel more positive and it makes me know that the election will soon end and things will go back and we'll begin to live a less stressful life. And I, I'm going to kind of practice some of what you've preached. Thank you Thank so much. You. Thank you for having me. of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify,